Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hello, and welcome to the Publicly Challenged Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Oswald, and I hope you join me on my quest for knowledge to become a better public land hunter angler and forager stick with this and who knows maybe we will learn something together all right before we get to the show i just want to address one thing unfortunately in this day and age as wonderful as technology is it also has its limitations and um this this episode with Arthur Haynes is an absolutely amazing episode, and I highly recommend listening to it because it's that awesome. And don't be discouraged, though, because here's the disclaimer. It does have a few glitches in the audio. Not that bad. It's still audible, and it's still intelligible. It just has a, a few glitches because during this episode, Arthur lives pretty far into Maine and doesn't have regular internet he like a landline or anything he has satellite internet and unfortunately it was during a snowstorm so there is just a few audible glitches in there um, but everything is still you can understand the entire conversation so just please bear with that we apologize for that but it is an absolutely amazing episode, and it's uh, I really want you to listen to it. So please uh, listen to the episode, and you'll enjoy it too. Thank you. All right. We are back with another episode of Publicly Challenged, and we are here with Arthur Haynes. Arthur, would you like to introduce yourself for everyone listening? <laughs> absolutely. Hello, everybody. My name is Arthur Haynes. <laughs> um, I live in the mountains of Western Maine, and it's hard to know what to say about yourself, right? Um, I work as a plant biologist and also a, a hunting and fishing guide and, and teach ancestral skills. And, and uh, Clay and I do a lot of the 
the same kinds of things on our social media. So we have a huge overlap in the kinds of things that we enjoy doing and bringing to people. How's that for a start? That's good. I think it was Excellent. a very modest introduction, but uh, taxonomist, TED Talk uh, presenter, uh, many, many things other than just uh, Arthur Haynes. One, <laughs> yeah. one may say, as Clay says, the man, the myth, the legend. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, Arthur, I, I hold you in such high esteem in our foraging community. Like we had um, two weeks ago, I believe we talked to Sam and we have released, uh, have not released that episode yet, but I'm really excited to be able to back to back release uh, an episode with Sam Thayer and then with you, Arthur. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, Sam is a you know, is a good friend of mine. I don't see him often, but um, we also share a lot of the same philosophies around various topics. So it's nice to run into people who, you know, there's a depth of experience that allows people to sometimes hold really nuanced views and, and sometimes even contradictory views at the same time. And And that's what I really, I guess, enjoy about being with people who have been doing things it's like foraging for a long time because they've seen the ins and outs and they understand it's just not all it's not all just beneficial all the way around that sometimes there's dark sides to these various things that they've had a chance to be exposed to so i just i like that very realistic um approach to things if you will arthur i've uh I'm kind of curious myself because I don't know the background, but I mean, are you a Maine native uh, or was this just a decision at some point in your life that you wanted to go to the beautiful uh, landscape of Maine? No, I was really fortunate, Luke. I was born in the Western mountains of Maine, a little town called Avon, um, very tiny, you know, like a single store kind of thing. Not much other than just some homes and a lot of forest land. Um, the Sandy River, which is a part of the Kennebec River drainage, which flows out to the ocean, um, is something that I always lived within walking distance of. And, you know, a lot of folks who have grown up around rivers that I met later in my life, they were really nervous about swimming in them because they came from more populated areas where the rivers are too polluted to swim in or you don't eat the fish that kind of thing um i was really fortunate to grow up on a river that and you still can today you can literally drink the water from the river while you're swimming if you need to um and the fish they're as clean as fish can come today you know we we have a background level of pollution that we've put around the world um, but as far as, as far as pristineness goes, this river is absolutely beautiful. So I've had that kind of fortune or, you know, in the wrong circles, it would get called privilege. Um, but I would say I was just very fortunate to be born in that kind of a place. And, uh, and I've spent essentially my entire life within, you know, a couple hours, often much closer than that driving radius of my hometown where I was born. And so that helps you develop a lot of eco ecological knowledge of place, right? You, instead of people who have traveled all over the country and their knowledge is sort of diffuse, if you will, they know a little bit about this state and a little about that one. I've been really lucky to just always have hunted fish forage, camped, you name it, in this one bioregion. Um, and again, I feel really um, 
very glad that that's been my my upbringing. Wow, that's very beautiful. <laughs> so I've often pondered places. I have to just say this: that if I were to escape Illinois and its climate of just I don't know, I feel like it's sort of the armpit of the nation at times. But um, to go to a better and more beautiful place, Maine is like my number one spot to escape to if if I wanted to endure cold weather. So <laughs> to be able to live there <laughs> and yes. be that fortunate. Um, I mean, it's kind of like the place where if you want to go and be semi-forgotten, I, I feel like you could still do it in, in the mountains of Maine. Yeah. Yeah, we're, we're fortunate there, you know, our our landscape is like everywhere else. It's becoming more fragmented and, and more tracked up by roads. Um, but we still have places where you can get away and not hear the sounds of industry. It's getting harder to do. My God, the the side-by-sides are just absolutely everywhere now. And they often even disrupt our, uh, disrupt our hunts because there's just so much noise, particularly when you're up on a hillside. And uh, the trails are going through the valleys. There's just this noise everywhere now that's sometimes hard to get away from. But but there are still those locations where we can. And, you know, when it comes to the East Coast, um, you know, particularly <laughs> if you want to get away from, you know, real serious populated areas, Maine is the place to do that. And uh, like I said, you know, it, it's not perfect, but you can still make a good run of things here. And if you're someone who wants to have natural experiences, wilderness experiences, and to be able to engage with food directly, you know, rather than rather than saying, I want food that I told to grow here now, you know, grow this here now. That's sort of our paradigm when it comes to farming. And, and obviously, I'm dependent on a proportion of farmed foods in my diet, too. So I'm I'm very happy that there are some farmers who try to do what they can, but farming is a control ideology. It's not a participation ideology where you go out and you accept these are the foods of this place, right? It's like, you know, our lake trout I recently posted on, it's not the most gloriously colored fish in the whole world, some would say, but to me, it's one of the most beautiful fish out there. And I'm very happy that I've gotten to a place where I just accept these are my neighbors, if you will. And they don't have to be bright scarlet colored. They don't have to be the biggest. They don't have to be the fastest. It doesn't have to be an African, you know, safari. It's just mm -hmm. coming to connect with what you have in your environment for those of us who can and, and recognizing that these are the, the other lives that you were meant to enter reciprocity with. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Arthur, I have a question for you in regards to that. Um, so I've been thinking about this for a number of years, that uh, our, our modern food system puts us into contact with so many different foods from around the world that I often feel like maybe our gut biomes are actually a little bit um, confused. And what you just spoke to seems like that would have been the ancient norm, like eating, eating a diet that's routinely the same for much of the year. Um, can you speak to that at all and what your experience would be like from a scientific perspective? Yeah, I mean, you bring up a really good topic there, Clay, because even today with these global transport systems to bring food all over the world, we still actually have less diversity in our diet than many hunter-gatherers did. Um, if you look at, you know, take 
you know, some hunter-gatherer group prior to colonization, say in the mid-Atlantic or southeastern U.S., when when ethnobotanists first started documenting the foods that they had consumed, you could easily come to over a hundred species of plants, different species that they engaged with throughout the year. But a lot of Americans are engaging with about 30 species of plants a year. And it sounds like such an incredibly low number, but um, you, ha you have to remember things like, you know, broccoli, cauliflower, Romanesco, kale, Brussels sprouts. Those are all the same species, right? That's just Brassica oleracea. So we see them as this great diversity of foods, but it's actually just one. And, and that means that we get a limited amount of nutrition and chemistry in terms of diversity from those species. And we could do a similar listing of a number of species of beans where we go to the supermarket and there may be four or five different kinds of beans, but they're all just cultivars of one species and the same with various squashes. So when you take this into account, we actually eat less food, less types of food than hunter-gatherers did, especially when it comes to animals. I mean, many, many tribes in North America may have over the course of the year eaten 30, 40 different kinds of animals and try to imagine how few many people when it's just beef pork chicken you know those are the staples that you eat almost every meal but another part of that or another part of this answer that i think clay that you were getting at is those foods aren't coming from just one locale you know one watershed they're coming from all over the world from places that no one ever gets to see how that food was grown or raised, which is also another problem, right? When you hunt the animals in the forest, you know that they actually were living the life that creation meant for them up until the point of their death. And even that creation meant for them because many of the things that we hunt are species of prey. In other words, we look at it and say, oh, that's this really sad thing, but that is their ecological role to feed other animals. And sometimes mm -hmm. the other animals that they feed is us humans, right? And so it's, it's amazing to think of humans used to be made up of foods that came from whether that be a forest, a prairie, uh, you know, wherever the Aboriginal peoples, using that term loosely, lived, they were made up of foods that came from a relatively small part of the planet. And men, to go a little further, when they died and buried their dead, and their dead decomposed and became food, if you will, for the fungi and the trees that would grow upon them, and now you're eating acorns from oak trees that were fed by their dead bodies, you get this really cool reciprocity going on, right? It's the original agreement as a heterotroph, as something that needs to eat other animals. I get to eat these animals without guilt, despite what the vegans might want to claim, right? <laughs> I get to eat these animals without guilt, but the original agreement states that I will give my body back. I'm not going to hide it away in a vault. I'm not going to fill it with chemicals. I'm going to give it back, in my case, to the forest, and I will become food for the forest. And, and species that I hunted will one day feed from the trees that ate my body. You know, it's like, yeah, we used to be made up of just this one area, and now we're just diffused, divorced beings. And it, spiritually, if we wanted to go in that direction, I mean, what does that do for us? 
except divorce us from the very creation that we're meant to to see how amazing it actually is. I am super glad that you brought that up, Arthur, because I feel like spiritually you get nourishment from the actual hunt, the pursuit of the animal, from the local landscape, something that gives you a connection to the earth, to the animal. And then as you consume that animal, it not only nourishes your body, but your soul. And I've, I've told people that for a long time, and I'm glad that you brought that up because I feel the same way about that. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. Yeah. So at, at, at the risk of making some people uh, <laughs> raise some eyebrows here, one of the things that I like to do in my classes, and uh, not everyone will agree with me, and I'm also not female, so that that could change you know people's perspectives here, but you know, I, I like to bring up in my classes, as weird as this is going to sound like, man, you know, we consider paying for sex to be something that is uh, not everyone goes for that. Right. And because intimacy is considered such a, 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 a sacred act that it should be between willing partners. And mm-hmm. I don't disagree with that. But I try to use the example. If you take a donut. And I put my finger inside the donut. I'm not actually inside the donut, right? Mm -hmm. I'm in an orifice in the donut. But when it comes to food, it goes into your digestive tract, which is not inside your body yet. It's just in the donut hole, so to speak. But then you break it down and it passes inside your body and literally makes up the being that you are your marrow, your bones, your muscles, your connective tissue, your heart, your brain, and all the other organs, your skin, your hair, your very personality is in part built by these lives that you break down and become, right? When you eat a deer, the deer becomes human Mm -hmm. by breaking it down in your body, but you become deer as well, right? You guys merge, if you will. So I would argue that eating is maybe one of the most sacred acts that we do, that it's actually more sacred than sex, even though I rank intimacy (laughs) extremely high in my list of sacred things, (laughs) but that we have in this industrial society been willing to farm out, literally and figuratively, the, the raising and growing of our foods to virtually anyone, regardless of their morals or ethics or what they do to these beings. And yet, what is more sacred than consuming other lives when you look at it in the perspective of it literally makes up who you are mm-hmm. wow that was so well said so, I can't, I, I, yeah I so hopefully it. i don't drive anybody away with my sex and food analogy but, no i think you it's know perfect. to me food is is very very sacred and and i also from the perspective of domestication i love to ask the question what do you want to form your building blocks, right? Mm-hmm. A domesticated chicken or say a roughed grouse? Do you want to be that cow over there, which is still a magnificent creature, don't get me wrong, or do you want to be that white-tailed deer? There's a difference between these animals. And those differences we could chalk up to being both positive and negative, but there's something different about domesticated animals. I mean, hell, we are one, right? We know there's a difference between us 
and many of the indigenous peoples that still live in close connection with their uh, with their ancestral lifeways. And yeah. it's like, what do you want to be made up of? The wild or human space? Yeah. I know, yeah. I know my answer for sure. <laughs> it's definitely the wild. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, Arthur, there's a, there's a question we've asked um, a couple different people now on the podcast or we've talked about anyway, and that is, um, I have a preference for eating venison that never touched corn. So I'll go out of my way to hunt in areas where there's no agriculture around. Um, and I do actually feel like greater nourishment from that. Um, what would what would that signal to you? I'm just curious what you think. We've asked a couple other people about this. Yeah, that's a. I mean, that's a great question. And it actually, I mean, scientifically, if we wanted to stay in that realm, there's a number of things that change. You know, we know that when let's use uh, studies from cows, uh, when they consume kind of their uh, ancestral diet, if you will, which would be grasses and forbs, things that would be found in, in openings, right? Hmm. Um, their tissues have an omega-6 to omega-3 ratio of about two to one, hmm. which is an, an amazing ratio, right? Because we want to be in that one to one to three to one ratio to make sure that the omega-6 fatty acids don't become such a huge part of our intake when it comes to these essential fats that we start promoting inflammation and suppressing the function of our immune system. But as soon as you start on the feedlot and, and feeding all these grains, it starts to change. And now it gets up into the five to one and higher ratios where we start to get outside of what generates health um, you know, for humans, we see the same things. If we take chicken eggs, I think a chicken that is foraging uh, in the field on insects, green plants, and obviously chickens ancestrally eat seeds and grains, uh, the fruits of grasses and things like this. Uh, but they're one to one in their omega six to omega three ratio, but grain fed chickens are 19 to one. Wow. Now we're getting into a food that Yes, I, even if I could only eat grain-fed eggs, if it was all I had access to, I would still eat some. But man, I want those one-to-one omega-6 to omega-3 -one omega eggs. That, that's, that's the egg from the wild practically now, right? Mm -hmm. And so you sensing a difference between these two types of animals. I mean, even just scientifically, we can document that animals eating their ancestral diets have differences in their nutrition that either support or take away from your overall physical well-being. And and, and let's face it, I don't, I don't care how, how spiritually beautiful and elevated and enlightened you may be, if your physical shell is deteriorating, man, it's hard to access. It's yeah. it's hard to access that spirituality. So we've still got to take care of our physical shells. Would you, and I don't know how far you want to go on this on our first episode, but would you say that it's possibly by design to um, suppress our immune systems and break down the spiritual spirituality? Well, I, d I don't know if it is, but but I will say a lot of things that sometimes appear to be, you know, conspiratorial, and maybe there's a theory behind this, they're often just outright incompetence. 
Mm-hmm. That, and, and so whether it was intended or not, boy, it creates an amazing treatment care <laughs> uh, treatment <laughs> care system for generating patients, right? And right. so whether it was intended or not, we know that it makes people a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And and so certainly once it's been developed, once this system's in place and there's a pharmaceutical industry, and I call it a treatment care industry, I do not like calling it a healthcare industry because they're into just continuing treatments rather than treating root cause. Um, man, if you went to your car mechanic, right, and all he ever did was fix the minor problems that were coming up because of something that was going wrong really big with your engine, you wouldn't go to him anymore. <laughs> but with doctors, you don't have a choice because by and large, they all do symptomatic treatment now. No one really does root cause or what would be called definitive treatment anymore. And that's just very sad. But yeah, I, I will say the system of food creates a lot of disease and man, it works out well for some people. I, I would agree with that 100%. Um, so let's kind of roll into that because I know you're a big proponent of not necessarily holistic medicine, but uh, plant foods as medicine and going out into the landscape and collecting those and using those for herbalism and just nourishment as well. Um, can you kind of talk about that a little bit or expound on that? I think one of the most important things that people need to realize is that there have been a lot of physicians and surgeons who lived with hunter-gatherers on what was the frontier. And so we're talking the latter half of the 1800s, the early part of the 1900s in some very remote or very cold or very dry parts of the world where essentially Europeans hadn't yet fully colonized. And so hunter-gatherers were still consuming, by and large, their traditional diets. And over and over and over again, the reports from the physicians and surgeons, some of which have been summarized in various works, I touch on it some in the uh, book, A New Path. I have a whole part of a chapter just talking about their observations, again, the physicians and surgeons, a near zero incidence of chronic disease. So that's cancer neurovascular diseases, cardiovascular diseases, diabetes, depression, you name it. It just, it it didn't exist um, or was extremely, extremely low. Now, let's be clear, hunter-gatherers did have to concern themselves not with chronic issues, but with acute issues. If you were to fall and have a, an open fracture of your leg, of course, that may have meant that you were going to die because that requires some pretty uh, severe treatment, if you will, to make sure that that uh, does not become infected and lead to the end of your life or loss of limbs and things like this. So I'm not trying to present that they had it all, but through eating a diet that humans are evolved to consuming, those are the wild foods, 97.5% of our entire history as homo sapiens, we have consumed wild foods, either entirely or in large part. Mm-hmm. And then we have movement regimes, the types of water that we drank, the soil that we interacted with, the sunlight that we were exposed to, the elements, our spirituality, community, all of these are forms of nourishment that we receive. And it's plainly possible to live long lives without chronic disease. But it's 
almost impossible to do it once we engage at near 100% levels with cultivated foods. If you look at Weston Price's work, the dentist from, from Ohio, as he went around the world in the 1930s, if I'm remembering correctly, everywhere he went and looked at people who had beautiful, well-formed faces with room in their mouth for all their teeth, they weren't crooked, they weren't impacted, and there was a near zero incidence again of dental caries. These were all people who were consuming in large part or entirely wild foods. There were very, very few exceptions to that rule. And so what's important to realize is it isn't even just the foods themselves, which science over and over again demonstrates they're higher in vitamins, they're higher in minerals because they're actually taking from the soils that haven't been depleted. Um, they're higher in beneficial phytochemicals that bolster the functioning of our immune system, protect us from sunlight, uh, protect our cells from cancer, and also have more fiber when we're talking about the wild versions of the plants. And you put that all together and people were just getting exactly what they needed to stay healthy. And that's just all gone today. Um, we're talking about depleted soils, genetically modified foods. I mean, it's important for people to remember that almost everything they buy in the supermarket for plant foods is genetically modified. And, and, and I mean that because breeding is a form of genetic modification, right? If you look at the corn we eat and the wild progenitor it came from, they don't look anything alike. And that means their genes were changed to create this new form that we consume. And so we're just eating genetically modified foods all day, every day, practically, and it just doesn't serve us. So I, I don't know if that gives a, a launching point, Luke, or, and hopefully I've answered your question without rambling on for too long, but the foods that we did eat and the foods that we eat today are different in so many ways. And I'm, I'm sorry, when, when you, when you grow foods that Sometimes you know full well that the way that you're growing them is causing harm to other organisms, to other people. How can that food be good for people to eat? You know, mm. it carries those intentions. You know, it, all the Native Americans that I run into, like, uh, let's say I'm at Buffalo Bridge. I went there uh, a few years ago and it was a wonderful experience to go and help natives who have this tiny little piece of property near the Yellowstone River that they get to hunt buffalo on. And we go out and just offer help in butchering animals. And I think I heard it at least twice in my short time there that it was really important that you put all stress away, you put all anger away, every negative emotion that you would never want to um, have expressed at the dinner table all disappears and you feel nothing but but happiness and gratitude for what's happening so that that's the energy that's the spirit that goes into the food that everyone gets to uh, consume from that buffalo in this case that people shot and no one's ever expressed that exactly in those ways um, from my culture, the American culture, although I think some people would agree with that, that it's really important to do those same things. But where I'm going with this is we know that there are people that don't raise good food mm -hmm. and how that is supposed to nourish the human body or the human spirit. Um, well, it, it, it just can't. 
It just can't. Yeah. And yeah. I'm, yeah. I feel again, very fortunate that those aren't the foods that I consume very often. Most of the time I can avoid it completely. Yeah. Um, Arthur, uh, a couple months ago, you had, you had made a post on Facebook, I believe, and it was all about inulin. Now I'm very fascinated with inulin because a, you know, everybody knows that it's chock full in Jerusalem artichokes, or as we all like to call them, fartichokes. Um, and it, and it, and it, <laughs> yeah. it, it, uh, it causes everybody to have a lot of gas if you're not used to it. Um, but you've made the assertion many times and probably even spent a big portion of your book, uh, the new, a new path talking about it. But I would love to know, like, scientifically speaking, like, why is it important for people to have inulin in their diet? And just as another sidebar, I just, just because I'm like interested in trying things out right now, I'm doing a month of a carnivore diet just to try it. And, um, I modified carnivore diet. Yeah. Modif modified carnivore diet. Cause I'm eating like a little bit of blueberries and stuff. Um, but I already know I'm halfway through the month and I already know that I don't like it. And, uh, I've, uh, I was actually thinking about you earlier today and how you've always espoused like just the human diet, not this like manufactured diet that can be bought at the grocery store, which ironically is what I've been doing lately is just buying a lot of meat at the grocery store. Um, but I don't have any inulin. So going back to the inulin, can you speak to the benefits of inulin and why we should all be having more of it? Yeah, the the carnivore diet is a is an interesting kind of more modern phenomenon. And we say, well, no, 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 there were these far northern people that, you know, ate this super high proportion of animal foods. And yes, they did, but it wasn't necessarily by choice. It was what their environment demanded. Mm -hmm. And all of those people as soon as plants became available, even for a relatively short season, immediately rushed to gather those plants, right? That was a huge part. And, you know, you look at, um, for example, you, uh, there was a study done looking at the um, Anupiat, and they only 1% of their calories in a year came from plant foods. 99% of their calories from animal foods, because again, their environment required it. But 50% of their vitamin C came from that 1% of their calories. And this is the, the thing is that animal foods and plant foods synergize each other so beautifully because they each contain, well, they contain a lot of the same things and they contain some very different things. And sometimes they contain the exact same thing that isn't as available in one or the other of those foods. For example, you know, vitamin B6 from plants is more stable when it's cooked, but it's less bioavailable than the vitamin B6 that's less heat stable from animal foods. And we could do more examples of that type of thing, but they just work so well together. So you have all of these beneficial phytochemicals and you have fiber that come from plants. And I swear, if people were to fully understand the the array of chemistry that comes from plants, they would never not want to eat them. Now, I want to make clear that this carnivore diet has some really important implications when it comes to therapeutic diets for people who are dealing with loads of sensitivities. So there's... I'm not saying that no one should ever embark on it, but if you can eat the plants, 
you should at mm. least some of the time right um but but anyways so getting back to something like inulin inulin is this carbohydrate and it's a prebiotic which means our small intestine isn't able to break it down so it goes to the large intestine where it's fermented and there it creates these little short chain amino acids like butyrate and butyrate does all of these wonderful things to the colon cells it suppresses inflammation it increases uh, something called differentiation in other words the little primordial cells become what they're supposed to become they mature into the types of cells that they they're supposed to if we don't have differentiation we just have cells that are growing and multiplying that's a tumor right there's just <laughs> a mass of cells and so that's really important we want differentiation and it also upregulates a process called apoptosis again in our colon where cells get to the end of their life and they may be starting to get damaged or accumulate sort of genetic defects and how the body protects itself from genetic defects being perpetuated and and uh, expanded on, if you will, it, it kills those cells. And that's what apoptosis is. It's this programmed cell death. And inulin supports all that in the large intestine. So anybody, literally anybody who has a history of colon cancer in their family remember i'm not saying that that's a genetic disease it may be a cultural disease mm -hmm. if you eat the way your family ate and they got colon cancer well you might get it too because you are genetically more similar to your family than you are to some random person uh, out in the population so we we often think of these things as having this genetic basis well they, they do you share a lot of genes with your family and then if you eat the same way as them you're probably going to get the same diseases they got and so inulin is just one of those really important things that we don't get a lot of in our diet there are some legumes and some other sources of cultivated um, plant foods that do contain inulin but some of these really big sources like you mentioned uh, the the tuberous sunflower or the fartichoke i love that name um, <laughs> you know those are really high sources of inulin and you know you everyone mentions well there's a little bit of flatulence with it that is the fermentation happening that's mm -hmm. actually in this case really good stuff going on inside of your body that just needs to get expelled once in a while so i always tell people just don't eat it right before your first date with somebody <laughs> uh, at my foraging classes i when we talk about it i often say don't eat it before yoga also <laughs> yeah. i i really appreciate that we've both given a warning about a particular situation where you shouldn't consume it before i mean and i also tell people if you're really worried about it you know you can just cook it longer and there'll be less of it um you know that's one way around it or or gather it in the spring when some mm -hmm. of those um sugars those carbohydrates are being converted into more simple sugars but then you're not going to get as much of the inulin you know but mm -hmm. um yeah just deal with it it's very good for you and it's something that our cultivated diets don't give us much of and i mean it's it's i don't know what number on the list of the top 100 things that we don't get much of in our cultivated diets but inulin would probably be on that list 
what are some common plants that maybe people could introduce into their diet this coming spring that have, uh, aside from Jerusalem artichoke? Chicory. Um, well, yeah, chicory, <laughs> but um, what, yeah, what other- no, That's what a other great, things? that's a great example. Um, and while chicory is one of those plants that it's cultivated, and in fact, when you, if you ever go to a supermarket or, or like say a Whole Foods, they sell dandelion greens mm -hmm. there. They're actually not dandelion, they're chicory. But, mm -hmm. but people are more familiar with the name dandelion than chicory. So it's just a marketing tact, um, but it's actually chicory that you're eating those bitter greens. But, um, you know, the tuberous sunflower that we've mentioned and the chicory, the roots, we're all talking about the underground storage organ right now, um, mm -hmm. are, are, are great. Another really easy one to come by is burdock, which is also mm. really rich in inulin. And, and as you would know, Clay, and you could share with people, you know, you need to make sure that you're getting those first year plants, not yep. the reproductive ones that are sending up the aerial shoots because they they essentially draw on all of the reserves of that taproot and sort of becomes a leathery exterior and a woody interior core. You want them when they're still crisp, like um, the texture of a Oh, like a potato or a carrot, those kinds of crisp textures is what we're looking for. So you're always harvesting those first year plants that are just rosettes of leaves. Um, those are just some of the really easy ones to come by. And, you know, if you were to go to like a Whole Foods or even some supermarkets that are in more well-to-do neighborhoods, you can often find um, tuber sunflower, you know, the Jerusalem artichoke which is the, the strangest name to me. It's not from yep. Jerusalem and it's <laughs> yeah. not an artichoke. I just don't understand how it ever got this name, but yeah. anyways, um, and you can find those in the supermarkets. And in fact, you can also find, um, you know, burdock roots. It's Arctium Lapa, the, the greater burdock that they sell because it's part of some Asian cuisine. So, you know, some of these things are available. And if I didn't have access to wild places to gather it, I would definitely go and purchase these things because it, it it opens up another topic of minimally modified plants. Mm. So we have the wild plants and then we have like the seriously genetically modified plants that we eat. An eggplant is a great example. Corn is an example. Lettuce is an example. These things that we, the forms we eat look nothing like what's in the wild. You can barely recognize that they come from the same plants. Mm -hmm. But then there are all these plants that I call minimally modified, where certainly there have been some modifications, but the plants really look like they're wild progenitors, which is a great proxy for they still contain a lot of the beneficial phytochemicals. They haven't been changed so much that they have lost that chemistry that supports our immune system. Uh, you know, raspberries and blueberries are these great examples because everyone knows that the wild raspberry and the cultivated raspberry, we can tell them. You don't need a, a botanical degree to figure out that they're very closely related to each other. And uh, the Jerusalem artichoke, the, the chicory, and the burdock that we might buy in the stores are still really, really close to their wild progenitors. They haven't been changed that much. They still contain that chemistry and that fiber that we're going for uh, in plant foods. So these minimally modified plants, when I walk into a store to buy produce, 
I always want to buy as close to the wild progenitor as I can. So I never buy iceberg lettuce, literally. <laughs> I might buy romaine, but the leaf lettuce has been shown to have the greatest abundance of you know, nutrition and beneficial phytochemicals because it's actually the closest to the wild progenitor. And we could do this, you know, with tomatoes, with apples, with everything that you might go in the store to buy. There's a book um, that's called Eating on the Wild Side, which is kind of a misnomer, but it it essentially tries to get at if you're going to buy corn, which one has the highest antioxidants, for example, buy that one because you, you get a little bit more benefit to your health um, out of consuming that corn versus this corn. And so I um, I do like that idea because I think it helps us get more nutrition when we have to hit the farmer's market, the supermarkets and places like that. Wow. Yeah, that is um, that is all really, really valid points. And um, the that book, Eating on the Wild Side, yeah, it is definitely kind of misleading the title because it is like essentially a guide to buying supermarket items that are kind of similar to being wild. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> um, Arthur, one of the things you mentioned was Buffalo Bridge and um, spending some time out there. Now, originally, wasn't that started by like a group of uh, primitive skills? Like it might be, I don't know if it was a group of women or somebody that, that saw the need for helping uh, skin out these animals and then it just kept growing. Yes. Yeah, uh, it's exactly it. It was, you know, it started by and and. My version of the history may not be exact, and I don't want to upset anybody, but essentially, there's a few women that have um, leadership roles uh, in Buffalo Bridge who who started this just to help with this buffalo hunt. And the thing that we have to remember is just because you are a Native American, it doesn't mean that you know how to butcher animals, mm -hmm. right? They have been culturated into a nature divorced society and have lost in many cases and in many individuals a huge set of the skills that not many generations ago their great 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 grandparents or or just grandparents in some cases would have been living and utilizing on a more daily basis and so this was just a group of people who had skills in butchering um one of them for example um, you know, had had worked in a butcher shop for a long time. So you have people like Katie and Epona and Harmony and others that organize this. And I, I do want to say, having this event and all of these people under this umbrella of a of a female organized event, it really did have a completely different tone to the whole thing. Um, and, and it was a good tone. It was a much more communal tone. And I I, I don't think that it, it has to necessarily be all women, but we finally had an event where women had a very strong voice in how the organization would be laid out. And it was really wonderful to watch. I just want to put that out there too. Um, but yeah, this is an event where when the when shots are fired on this very small piece of property as the buffalo migrate out of Yellowstone Park when the snow gets too deep and they come into this area of Montana where there is this postage stamp size piece of property before the buffalo move onto private ranch land. 
So I just try to imagine that you're a, you are um, a descendant of people who hunted these animals and you can only hunt them when the snows get deep enough so that they move out of a park where they're protected. And you've got to get to them before they then enter private ranch land, all of which may have been your ancestral homeland and you're mm. shut out of all of it except for this tiny little area. And I don't know how big that area is but when i look at it it looks like maybe 10 acres or something i may be way off but it's <laughs> wow. just a tiny little postage stamp they shoot and it's really amazing there's a number of tribes who in their treaties have access to the buffalo and they set it up very often the elders get shot first or people who have never shot buffalo and after the animals are dropped these are usually rifle shots um then we go out and without being intrusive to the best of our ability, um, the the uh, the folks go out and simply just, you can generally tell just from a look. There are some people who are getting busy and, and really breaking the animal down and others that are like, oh, yeah, sure, this is the first one and I'd love your help. <laughs> um, I'd never uh, butchered buffalo before, but deer, bear, moose, you know, it, it's just all minor modifications. The anatomy is kind of all the same between them and so i could offer some help but i tried to follow the lead of the people who had been there for a while first to sort of understand um, how they went about interacting uh, with the natives who had treaty rights to be able to hunt on this land is amazing amazing event um it's a very difficult event to organize and manage um i don't know i, I i'm totally blown away um by what the what the organizers of buffalo bridge have been able to accomplish yeah i mean in my mind it just seems like it would be such a great feeling to be able to one one be there and help but two to be able to form that bond with with the natives and and be able to just break down those magnificent creatures yeah and and you know you the the natives that we help often give gifts they sometimes give hides sections of meat um organs that they don't just no longer consume and there was nothing ever expected uh so but just some people just gifted it and it was amazing i i should say that that we did this uh ceremony one night for the buffalo and essentially just praying for their perseverance given all that hap has happened and will continue to happen to the buffalo and we go out not far from this um, area where the um, where the indigenous have the uh, treaty rights to hunt, and we have a buffalo heart that goes inside of this rib cage, and we all set up some mullen torches and just start praying. And the women, the other difference, you know, if we get a group of men together, we all just none of us want to sing because we don't like our voices, but the women have these beautiful voices and they just sing all the time. And some of the most beautiful songs. And when it came time to offer prayers and say words, again, the women are just willing to go there with this, uh, these expressions of emotions and breaking down, crying and sobbing. And the men, you know, we have to keep up the facade. I'm tough. I'm strong. I don't have to do this, you know, too tough for this. And it's just, it, it, it creates it creates a really different tone and it creates a very special tone. I was there for about a week and that night during our ceremony and only that night during the ceremony, the wolves were howling in the distance. We could hear mm. them. 
and multiple sets. And it was so beautiful. And, you know, I'm, I'm happy that that's just coincidence. And I'm happy to interpret that as something else too. Mm-hmm. Right. Clay wow. doesn't necessarily believe that women should be on the hunt with men at the same time. I didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've never said that. Uh, no, no. Well, yeah. I just want to I make clear that, that in, in my experience and with the with the beautiful partners that I've had, yeah, maybe exactly during the hunt isn't the best time. However, <laughs> after the hunt, you're talking about people that have butchered, in some cases, far more animals than I have. And it's amazing to watch the work. We do a... Um, we do kind of like a mini Buffalo bridge, we call it. And our name is not nearly as nice. It's just called Moose Camp. But every year I find someone who wants to be guided on a moose hunt. And we go into the North Main Woods. And um, I help them with their moose hunt. And our strategy, we don't just hunt from the roads like many, many, many people do. Just driving around for a week looking for a moose. It's not a judgment. That's just not. That's not that the sounds type miserable of hunt that I would to like me. To do. <laughs> by the way, uh, but yeah. but for some people, yeah, you know, for some people, it's all they know how to do, and uh, okay, whatever, right? But I generally, I have my clients tend to be uh, more active and reasonably fit, and so we find places where bridges are out and vehicles can't go, and in the North Main Woods, this is an actual delineated entity um no atvs are allowed Mm. which is wonderful because now you can actually get away from people and away from noise and so long as you're willing to walk a half a mile that's all it takes you have the forest to yourself literally Uh, sometimes we go to a mile mile and a half depending on what the moose sign is telling us and once we're successful then send someone out who brings the whole group out and we all break that animal down and then pack it out, uh, sometimes needing to make several trips, you know, to get that animal out to the vehicle where we'll take it back to the campsite and finish um, getting it ready for transportation. And I'll tell you, there's there's no better, no better field butchers uh, than the women that I've seen. I mean, the carcasses looked like they were picked clean by ravens. They have this... <laughs> You know, the guys, myself included, well, it's a pretty good job. We've gotten what we've gotten it. You know, and they're no, no, no. <laughs> and it's like they'll just take the time to get every last bit. And I really, uh, I really appreciate that. Um, and men, like I said, gleaming white carcasses sometimes because of the care that women took to make sure to honor that animal. So there, there's a place. <laughs> Right. Yeah. There's a I, place. I, um, I need to clarify <laughs> that I have never said that. Yeah, I bet you do. Oh, <laughs> um, it I wasn't have, said have, in that context. It was more. It, it was more of a deer. <laughs> it was a deer camp type scenario to where he says, "I wouldn't. I want to go just hang out with my my friends and just be a bunch of dudes." Was his word. Yeah. It was not. Yeah. It was not. Oh, women don't belong in the hunting space. That was not the yeah. case. I yeah, just. Yeah, I yeah. want to clarify that, but I just thought yeah, it yeah. was funny because it, it, it's it, it's fun to poke poke fun <laughs> at the comment. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and I'm sorry, Clay. It's too late. 
It's out. It's out there. We've been just looking for the smoking gun. You are a sexist bigot. We're just waiting for it. And as soon as the woke get their hands on this part of the podcast, you're done. Your career is over, man. As I've been told, Clay, the blue the blue hairs heads will explode. I've been told that before. Um, Just kidding. But anyway. Um, no, I um I have uh, my my fiance and and long term you know gal of seven years. Me and her have um she has spoken many times of getting her hunting license, and I have always told her that's fine. You can go hunting, but I have said to her openly, I don't want to go hunting with you all the time because I enjoy doing that. The with solitude, my guy friends. yes, yeah. yeah, and and well, and the solitude, or just like going out and being with my guy friends because. I'm with her every single day. Oh, see, you know? now you just you just ruined it. I tried to make it better for you, and you ruined it. But just kidding. Um, to pivot to pivot on that note, Arthur. Um, let's let's compound on the on the moose hunting a little bit more, um, and kind of give an idea. I it it seems to me in Maine, it's almost a money game, and for a non-resident at least, how much you were willing to spend dictates on whether or not you'll get to hunt a moose in the coming year or five years down the road or whatever. Um, can we kind of talk about that and how that goes? And then if somebody did, uh, because I personally kind of have a question and it's just, um, is there any specifics of like, and I'm pretty sure they have like a, a trade system. So even if you drew, and this is kind of what I've picked up, but like if you drew a tag and you didn't want it, you could get on some of like the message boards or something for Maine and trade that tag for a different unit once you procured a tag. Yeah, there's a, there's a number of things about the moose permit system. It's a lottery. And forgive me, I forget the exact proportion, but it's something like 92% of the permits each year are reserved for Maine residents. So that remaining approximately 8%, it might be slightly different, um, goes out to non-residents to be able to put in. Now, a main resident can only buy a single chance each year. However, if they're not drawn, that becomes a point. So next year, when they buy a chance in the moose lottery, they have that point plus the point from the previous year. And so they get two draws. And after a number of consecutive years go by, each chance then becomes two points, then it becomes three points. And by the time you get to be 65, if you've been drawing for a long while, you just automatically get a permit um, if, you've, if you've accumulated enough points. The out-of-state system works a little bit differently um, because you can buy as many chances as you want. So if you want to put in thousands of dollars, you're able to do that. Um, so, But you also have a much smaller portion of the overall um, lottery reserved for you as a non-resident. Um, you can occasionally, um, it's possible to swap districts if you're given one, um, because Maine, like most states, is divided up into these wildlife management districts. We have oh, a pile of them, approximately 30. I don't know the exact number, but it's close to 30. And, you know, certain areas are very, very good, but they might be a long way from where you live. And that creates a real obstacle for some people to drive 
three or four hours or more to scout moose and then to go back and camp and hunt, it can turn into a financial obstacle for people. So some would much rather hunt closer to home where they um, maybe they can even stay at home or with family that lives near there. Um, you know, where they're hunting, but you also have a sub permittee. Um, so this is another way that you essentially gift the moose permit. Each year you get to pick a sub permittee and now you or your sub permittee are allowed to shoot the moose. No one else, obviously just you too. Um, so like, for example, this year, one of my, actually my first apprentice, um, who is still living in Maine after moving here from New York, um, essentially asked me to help guide and made me the sub permittee and it just turned out um that i was the one who had the shot this year um this was the first year i'd actually shot a moose and i was helping other people um shoot moose so that was a fun a, a, a really amazing um the story is pretty crazy as to what happened but um it was a really intense but a, a very wonderful week. Um, we had very warm weather this year, and historically, Maine moose hunts have had about I think it was seventy six percent success rate. It's pretty high. Yeah. Um, this year, though, that was very different. It was uh, somewhere in the fifties um, percent. So much. The last two years have been very low, sixty percent, and somewhere in the fifty percent range. Um, the the weather it's just it's changing here just like it's changing everywhere um the moose rut comes on based on day length so it's it's length of length of light essentially that sort of in in uh, initiates the moose rut behavior however really warm days can make them seek cooler areas and not be quite as open not quite as vocal not quite as active moving around they're still in the rut they still want to breathe but breed but they might not be out and about as much so the um we've had a not all of the week of hunting but part of the week of hunting the last two years has been a little bit warmer so it's cut down the number of sort of good hunting days and that cut into people's success rate would you mind telling the story if you have time i don't know if yeah uh... Sure. Um, we, we, when, when you go hunting moose, the thing that you have to remember is that you, unfortunately you're competing with a whole bunch of other people who also have permits for the area that you're in. And it's just like everything else that European descendants do. We, we, we believe that competition is the way to move through the world, right? It's, it's absolutely anti-human to compete. Um, you know, I won't, I won't go <laughs> too much further down that path, but, you know, cooperation is what we have always done in, in terms of hunting and gathering and living and supporting ourselves and defending ourselves. But we, we don't get to do a lot of that anymore. So this is one of the reasons why we're always trying to get in deep into these areas where we can get away from people. And that allows us to focus on the spirit of the hunt. Because when there's a whole bunch of people around you who hunt by a very different ethic system, shall we say, <laughs> it, whether you want it or not, it just erodes into the sacredness of what you're doing, no matter how much you try to keep it out. But we had a beautiful location where there were 
we had a lot of sign moose um you know they rub on trees just like deer white-tailed deer do except when they rub on trees they like destroy the trees you know these <laughs> saplings are broken and torn over it's sort of it just it's like a white-tailed deer on steroids and we had a wonderful area where there was a lot of rubs and a lot of tracks and i walked by these tracks and there was all this these tracks and skid marks and and there's patches of hair on the ground and i was like oh yes of course there were two bulls fighting there pushing each other around and the tines of the antlers were tearing out clumps of hair and you could actually see where some of the moose had been pushed back and their hooves had skidded for like a foot and a half in these old road beds that are starting to grow up it's like, this is where we need to hunt Obviously, there's evidence of two bulls here, not just one. So now we have an ability to use calls to potentially get these two bulls going against each other, not just pretending to be a cow to draw one of them in. Anyways, we walk in in the morning and we're, we're going in very early before sunrise. And unfortunately, one of the bulls is already there. We can hear it in the dark. It's very close to us. It's 30 yards away and you know it's like that sucks it's right in the field where we wanted to set up but it just happened to already be there and it finally moves away from us and then it snorts and a lot of people who hunt are familiar with white-tailed deer when they snort which can be pretty loud but try to imagine a white-tailed deer snort that is a bass this very low sound that i can't make and it's about 10 times as loud it literally echoes through this wetland valley that we're in and it's like this trumpet going off I've, and it's like damn every moose here knows we're here now and um it's getting late in the week we have this day and only one more so it's kind of coming down to the wire there's some stress and it's like damn well anyways we go we walk in a little further and we sit and we just sit quiet for a while, let the sun come up. And I say, what the hell? I have a birch bark moose call. And I just give this long cow estrus call. This sort of funny sound that, you know, if, you, if you're not familiar with it and you're not into the hunt, it just sounds like you're, you have some weird issue. But this <laughs> sound goes out <laughs> and I get a bowl responding to me um Came and on. the bull sound is is sort of equally weird this sort of aspirated grunt it's this oh, oh, sound that's going out right and so we slip really quietly down and uh then the moose it seems like it's right on top of us and because they're so loud even when they're making these grunt noises which are, the bulls make which are just not these loud bellowing calls it just seems like it's so close. Man, the moose was still probably 200 yards away from me. And it finally comes into view. And it's like 100 yards through all this regeneration, these young saplings. There's no clean shot. And I watch the moose sort of run tangentially to us because there's another actual cow calling. And of course, the moose is going to run to an actual cow before it comes to me. I'm a, I'm a very terrible cow moose right <laughs> and uh, so i don't know what to do because now this is sort of like the second 
botch of the day. Like we got to see the animal now, but it's going. So I decide to change tactics and I pretend that I'm a bull moose and I start grunting and essentially crashing toward this. I'm making noise intentionally. I'm breaking branches as if my antlers were hitting on trees and stamping really loud. And it works. The bull moose turns around and starts coming back toward me. And I'm like, man, and I get, and it's, it's like literally about to appear. It'd probably be a 50 yard shot. And I'm using a 308 rifle for this. Particular hunt. And I was like, this is going to be great. I don't, I don't believe it got my scent. Um, the wind was in our favor, but it, something happened and the bull runs off. Okay. So we sort of walk out. It's about 8.30 in the morning now. It's getting late. It's The day's almost over. And um, until the until the afternoon and evening, of course. And we sit down for a while. And I just say, what the hell? Before we leave, I'll give another cow call. So I give another one of those long calls. And a bull, another bull starts grunting back. It's like, Jesus, we're just being given chance after chance. Of chance. This is amazing. So we start walking back to where we just were. And I'm kind of going around. There's like a little... Not much of a corner, just a slight bend in the road. And there's some alders that had started to grow up, grow out into the road. So I couldn't see what was up ahead. And as I'm rounding out around, there's a bull moose standing in this old roadbed. Again, it's starting to grow up. So it's not like, don't think of it as this wide open gravel road, but it's just standing there looking at me. It's about 60 yards. And so I just stepped back, took off the moose call that I that I was carrying on me and brought the weapon up and it's a front on shot and I fire and the moose just drops. Nice. Wow. And uh yeah we we go up and um the apprentice who's with me he's a he's an amazing person he's never seen an animal this size killed before and we've spent a you know we spent this is seven or eight days between the scouting and the camping and the hunting. He's put work in, you know, and he has a tear streaming down his face. And I just thought that was so amazing. Like he's seen the animal struggles to get up a little bit and then it just lays down, you know, and it's a pretty intense moment. These are big animals. And we wait, about a minute goes by. And it's like, okay, let's clear our weapons. And we're going up to give an offering. And we have words um, and, and, and ceremony that we do with the animals that have fallen. It's been about a minute. And the animal just gets up and runs off. And what? at the time, I remember thinking, uh, I, you know, I was going to go up, up and shoot. Yeah. But I wanted him to have, you know, this, this skull that would be intact and... And the animal was down and motionless for a long time. I mean, a long time. It just runs off. I'm like, and we've cleared the weapons. It's been down for so long, motionless. We, we've we've taken packs off. I mean, all right. Um, and and that and that's kind of on me. You know, I should have checked more carefully. But the last thing that I want to do is just put unnecessary rounds into a carcass. Mm -hmm. I'm just not into that but in this case it was necessary so we start tracking and it's an easy track to follow there's a fleeing animal that weighs 700 pounds that's just <laughs> destroying the ground with its hooves and it's bleeding everywhere and it goes for about four tenths of a mile wow now i gotta back up just a little bit and let you know that 
in this place in the northern part of Maine, um, we always are on the lookout for chaga, and we've usually gone through <laughs> our winter supply by then, and it's time to start replenishing. And we hadn't found any. Everywhere we've gone, we hadn't found any. We hadn't found any. And we've noted it back at camp. Like, I haven't seen a single chaga anywhere we've gone. This moose runs for four-tenths of a mile and literally falls dead at the base of a yellow birch with about <laughs> 15 pounds of chaga and three masses. Now, three, because we had three different families there. We each walked away with these, one of these very large hunks of chaga. Again, yeah, sure, it's coincidence. I don't believe it's <laughs> Or it might be something else. Yeah. I yeah. think uh, that was that so, was meant to be. <laughs> that's that's part of the story. Now, of course, the animal had dropped on the edge of this old roadbed and was going to be relatively straightforward uh, to to butcher and pack out. Uh, it would have been almost no walk. My my Subaru that I use um, could get most of the way in. And man, it was a three tenths of a mile up a hill through raspberry slash regeneration across the swamp. It doesn't sound like much. It was just three tenths of a mile through the most unimaginable dense, you know, just slash. <laughs> we had to work um, and it turned into, you know, literally an all day affair getting the animal. But that is what we went there to do. We Absolutely. were all prepared for this. And it was so wonderful. My oldest daughter, who was 10, we were back at moose camp prior to this hunt and you know we're saying like we don't even have songs for all these activities like i'm i just we're so culturally orphaned you know we just have nothing and they made up songs for the moose and for the river that we camped on and they came in singing those songs as they approached the moose i'd flagged the way in because i was starting the butchering and never in my life did it feel so much like this indigenous community, right? That thing that we long for, the actual community where you've got the women and the other men coming in, the children, their songs being sung, the cavalry shows up and we all sit down and start working through this animal after, um, of course, our words and ceremonies that we do with these animals. So maybe that was, I hope I didn't take too long, but turned out to be a very, very special um, hunt. Each year we name the moose um, that we are graced with their bodies. And uh, this year's moose was the running moose. Nice. Mm. Nice. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, that was awesome. That's a great story, Arthur. I love how you tied it all together, and and I'm glad that it had the spiritual significance that it did for you. Um, and I'm actually glad that it didn't just die on the roadbed because it cheapened the experience versus what you got. Because that moose one gave you a gift when it did get up and run with that. And then on top of that, it made you work that much harder, which just means every time you sit down and you tell that story, you're going to appreciate it more with that type two type of fun where you're really putting in that effort. And, and I find that to be the most rewarding and most memorable hunts are the ones where you really had to struggle and put forth that effort. And Clay, I know it's the same for you. And, and especially when you get that reward after you finally get that animal, Clay, I know it just, it means so much more. And, and that's, mm -hmm. that's a beautiful thing. 
Yeah, it's not. Absolutely. It, 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 it's it's nothing like riding up on the back of an ATV to shoot a pig. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. Correct. Um, yeah. So with that being said, Arthur, I think this is a great jump off point. Um, and we'd love, and I know Clay would as well as myself, to have you back on at some point um, and, and chat with you again. Um, but before we go, Clay, you want to ask him? Oh, uh, yeah. How do people get a hold of you? What uh, what sort of information? Um, and if people do dry moose tag and they want to hire you because they don't want to go driving around for a week looking from the roads, uh, how do people get a hold of you? Um, well, I'm easy to find, Clay, as you know. I have a website that's just arthurhaines.com. Uh, I am on social media, um, Facebook, and, and I help operate the Wilder Waters community. Um, Facebook and and uh, Instagram. Unfortunately, we're required to be involved at least to some extent in these platforms if we want to see and meet people these days. Um, and yeah, I'm. You can just. It's easiest if people email me rather than contact me through social media. But I will eventually get your message um, <laughs> if you try to reach me through social media. Um, and there's obviously there's a YouTube channel where you can find a few foraging videos that I had done many, many years ago. Um, but I think some of them people still find useful. Um, they're not filmed in high def like they like everything is today. Um, but mm -hmm. the information, I think, is still really useful. And uh, yeah, that's the easiest way to get hold of me is just to go to my website and my phone number and contact is there. And um, if you call I'll I'll return your call if you leave a message and and uh, you're not trying to scam me of something or make me feel guilty for something I didn't do. I'll call you back. <laughs> um, do you have any upcoming foraging classes um, in the spring? I know that you do. Yeah. I, yeah. This this year, um, the first weekend in May, we have a spring foraging class and it's a it's one of my favorite classes. Why wouldn't it be right? Everything is shooting and there's flowers and it's just green again after the winter. It's absolutely amazing. But we're, we have a really, a really special thing that we get to do here. We visit an, an island that was tended by uh, a group of indigenous people called the Ulysigantegwig, um, the people of the river of rock shelters. They are no longer here. Mm. Uh, in this area, living as a tribe, but the results of their interactions with the wild are that's still present, and it's amazing, uh, absolutely amazing. Um, and so we get to go out to some special places like that. Um, later in the year, I'll do a medicinal plant class as well, which I I only do every two or three years, um, and I really just try to bump up people's confidence. Um, with what they're capable of treating. Cause I mean, you may have followed some of the things I've posted on Facebook, Clay, we, we treat some very serious things um, using plants that do not harm our probiotic floras. And uh, mm -hmm. that's available to everybody. It doesn't require, it doesn't require some special shamanic connection to the world. It's just available to any human that wants to study and learn. Mm. Awesome, man. Well, we really appreciate having you on. It's been a, it's been a pleasure. And I, I will speak uh, truthfully and honestly here. There's a couple of points when you were talking that I actually got goosebumps. Um, so it's it, it, it's pretty cool. Yeah. Arthur, it's been a pleasure. Well, thanks for inviting me, yeah. both of you. And Clay, um, 
you know, he's owed the debt of gratitude here. I, I get so busy sometimes I forget uh, messages and, you know, that people have sent me and Clay kept giving me that gentle reminder. Um, <laughs> and I'm very glad that he did because I enjoyed this a lot. And I'm being, being really serious. Thank you, Clay, because without you being willing to just persist and like, okay, how about now? <laughs> how about now? You're free now? Um, I, you know, we wouldn't have gotten a chance to talk. Yeah. And, and this was wonderful. Yeah. Arthur, I hope one day Clay and I can sit down and share a campfire and stories with you. And uh, it's been a pleasure meeting you and talking to you. That'd be the best. See you guys. And once again, thank you so much for listening to the Publicly Challenged podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please subscribe on whatever platform it is you're listening to. Also, if you could leave a review, that would help us out. And you can check us out on Instagram or at publiclychallenged.com. And once again, thank you so much for listening to the show. Thank you.